everybody. So welcome to Medad Economics. It is Saren Caracas too. And today I am with Professor David Just in Cornell, our grad students, Yurongrao and uh, Lane Koo. And our special guests are for this episode, Professor Dan Connors from University of Colorado. Before we start, actually, we would like to congratulate Richard Teller for the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on behavioral economics in general, as we are starting to raise some awareness on this topic. This is, I think, really important news. And our guest are then, he is directs the computer engineering program in the Department of Electrical Engineering at the University of Colorado, Denver. His areas of interest include systems, software, and scientific computation. And in his talk at TEDx Mile High at 2013, he presents the evolution of computer vision in our lives and questions what can humankind do with such power. And besides his academic distinctions, Dan also holds the position of Chief Analytic Officer in Allscript Analytics, and he leverages expertise in computer science to increase efficiency, effectiveness in healthcare, and also improve health outcomes. Dan, thank you for coming on our podcast. Great. Well, thank you for having me. So today we will start our discussion by talking about opioid crisis and behavioral aspects of humans that led to this situation. So opioids are drugs formulated to replicate the pain-reducing properties of opium, as you know. They include both legal painkillers like morphine, uh, oxycodone or hydrocodone prescribed by doctors and uh, for chronic pain as well as it inc- they include like illegal drugs like heroin and illicitly made fentanyl. So during 2015, there were around 52,000 of overdose deaths in the United States, and including 63% of them have opioid-related uh, deaths. And the number of opioid prescriptions actually dispensed by doctors steadily increased from 112 million to 286 million from 1992 to 2012. So this is really a huge number. And actually now and recently it decreased to 236 million in 2016. But this is still a huge problem. And we will truly discuss two sides of this situation. On the one side, we have the addictive behavior of patients, but on the other side, we have also the prescriber behavior, which may trigger addiction in some cases. And well, then I know that you have been working on opioid epidemics for some uh, long, and I'd like to ask you first, so what are the main challenges that prescribers face during their decision-making process that result in those dramatic numbers of prescriptions? Yes, and, and, and the opioid crisis is just one of many areas of healthcare that you know I got into this area because of the the potential benefit that technology can play in really the care of people so if you look at the opioid crisis as being one that is really critical and a crisis level there's there's several others spread out throughout healthcare that represent these same areas and so so coming back to kind of the question of what is the issue you know it is linked to several trends and these trends are not just in the past few years where more recognition has come into the news because of the significant death rates that you mentioned you know in 2015 about 50,000 deaths related to uh, drug overdose and about half of those you could attribute to somewhere in the pain management opioid space so the rest of that uh, the rest of that then is is coming out of of illegal drug use um, well, well illicit drug use that wasn't uh, prescribed at any time uh, that, that's correct I mean so this also you know part of the, part of the issue is 
in terms of data tracking as well. So if we think about this as a technology problem, one of the issues also comes down to having good data. And so with this, if you look at tracking even a single overdose, the question comes down to what is the coroner going to do in terms of register that detail so that we can track it to, was this an opioid-related death? Were there opioids in the system? Because there is this overlap between overdose from heroin that's been laced with high-potency fentanyl versus just overdose uh, due to taking too many pain opioid-releasing drugs. So, so even tracking that, you know, it's difficult. I, you know, there's several articles out that just describe these are, you know, when we say estimated 50%, could be higher even, you know, and that's what looking closely on a per state basis, what it's coming down to. But but coming coming back to the several trends. So if we if we even look at the history of pain management within the United States, and, and this could loosely follow other countries, but you know, there's different patterns as well when we talk about other countries and their healthcare system. But really in the mid-1990s, the American Pain Society changed their recommendations to better treat patients. So, you know, pain, chronic pain, extreme pain came up as an issue back in the 90s and how doctors were treating it. And effectively got what got opened up is that physicians were become more involved with resolving pain at the time. So we loosened some regulations on prescription opioids and being able to assign those. And so if you look in 1990s, mid-90s, that's exactly when oxycontinin or oxycodone was being introduced. And same thing in 1998, fentanyl was effectively generated. So this, this crisis right now, you know, even if you look at 2017, we can really see some of the origins going back 20 years. It's just now finally catching up because, the, you know, once the opioid pain management therapy is the dominant prescription method versus non-opioid pain management. So, so you have to look 20 years ago, you, chances are your doctors weren't going to give you an opioid just for chronic back pain. They would prescribe other techniques, non-opioid related. But now, the, you know, if we're talking about behavior of both the prescriber and the patient, the prescribers are more open to trying to take care of the immediate pain and there's, there's a solution, you know, opioids work very well. They're, they've been synthesized to work directly into the brain chemistry. And so some ways you could say they work too well in terms of what they're, they're providing. So if somebody is suffering from some sort of pain, uh, either chronic or not, not chronic, you go to the doctor and they're prescribed some sort of opioid. What's the, what's the risk of addiction if you're just, you know, following the directions the prescriber gives you when they, when they give you this originally? There's a lot. And so in terms of, you know, the rates of which somebody who gets just an opioid prescribed because they do have back, back pain, some chronic pain element, it's not well tracked as far as saying, well, one out of every six is going to develop an opioid addiction because of the scale at these prescriptions has really come on in the last five years as far as how they're being prescribed for chronic pain. So the fact that CDC usually tracks, you know, rates, but their process and model tends to not be year by year. So you might be able to understand trends from in the five-year window of range. So the things that we're talking now, it's, you know, we're having to overcome a lot of, of issues that have kind of been in the system for some time. We're just finding the, the details now. But generally, the CDC even 
for the past few years, I'd say since 2015, has a general guideline. So the CDC, Center for Disease Control, would try to improve the practice for recommendations to prescribers and clinicians. Uh, now, whether or not these are tracked, whether or not these are followed, I should say. So, you know, you have a guideline out there. And part of what we do within Allscripts Analytics is come in with effectively digital tools that can look over electronic health records and give a score for individual clinics to see if they are following the guidelines. You know, a doctor's doctor's day is now becoming more and more integrated with this electronic health record. So, you know, part of what Allscripts does is provide this guidance of we want it to be a solution to clinicians so that they can enter their information and, and provide as much care as possible. But currently, you know, we're just staging these types of built-in electronic guidelines so that they get these clinical decision support alerts to let them know, you know, have they, you know, what is the patient's history? So, so if we start to get into behaviors, you know, I can tell you all sorts of interesting details on electronic health records as far as what is actually the viewpoint of from a analytical perspective between a patient and the doctor. So, you know, you go into the doctor, the whole question I always now ask is, you know, how truthful is a patient? First question on the guideline of prescription might be is, you know, do you have, have you had a history of addiction? And so the question is, you know, your doctor and your relationship should be so such a good level that you just are immediately telling the truth. You're providing all the details. And I always question, you know, how much of that interaction is going to be come through so that you would be truthful on average with your doctor to say, yeah, you know, I have this history or it's in my family's history to have some addictive uh, issues. And so that in itself is lots of times the very first question on choosing should be in the, and it's in the guidelines for choosing a non-opioid therapy versus Okay, let's handle the pain that you're in and make sure that you're not in. Any it seems like that would be really effective in trying to prevent somebody becoming addicted. I wonder though how. I'm yeah, so, so if you're just saying trying to prevent, yeah, now it is now the cautionary. And so if you look at the data for at least opioid overdoses, that has actually leveled off. And so we do then have this back to a behavioral issue coming in where the, the rates of overdose. To drug relations is still going up, and it, it can be that opioids have served, a, served as a gateway. But a lot of what states have done, you know, each state has their own prescription drug monitoring program. And so mm -hmm. while the states differ, so there's ones in New York are very well established electronically, so that you know it is very difficult to go in New York to take a prescription and try to duplicate it. There is down to the level of almost like a text uh, transaction happening that would inform the prescriber that, you know, this prescription is trying to get used multiple time or refilled past its original description, but every state is different. And so that's, again, why the United States is always a unique healthcare scenario, because if you cross a state border, you're going to have different rules and regulations, and many people live on the borders of, of states. So if they don't find something working as far as trying to get access to medications, they can just go across wow. the state line. That'd be really interesting to see if, if uh, overdoses are more common around state lines. You know, that's a, that's a query I haven't yet tried to propose, but we definitely <laughs> do see hotspots 
on different regions of the country. So you, you know, coming back to opioid issues being potential a gateway to these other overdose scenarios is that usually if the clinician is limiting the prescribed pain management drugs, if a patient has gotten addicted, you know, they're now looking for a non-insurance health plan based way to serve that addiction. And that's where the heroin comes in. Because if you look at an opioid paying for it out of pocket, trying to get a hold of those, there is a there is a high cost to it. We generally think about this as saying, you know, opioids are going to be about $30 per some set of small number of pills. Whereas now the details that I've been seeing is, you know, heroin in certain markets can go for under $10. So that right there represents, you know, even if you have cut off the opioid from being prescribed to somebody because they, you know, have, you know, they're not willing to go back to the doctor, they can't shop around for pills from each doctor set, you know, that is largely has been addressed in many systems through these electronic monitoring programs. But now, you know, the view is so cheap on the street that you're just going to go on and find an illicit drug. And that is very largely unmonitored, unregulated from the perspective. You know, uh, we could have a whole nother podcast. I'm, I'm in Colorado, so we have legal marijuana use, which is very well regulated. But when you're talking about heroin, there is an interesting trend that comes up that is all about the fact that, you know, why would you want to take heroin if you know so many people are overdosing due to the strength of the fentanyl? It's this kind of oddity that from a dealer's perspective, fentanyl is very easy to get a hold of because it's synthetic. It can be made in large quantities versus older kind of grown, you know, out of uh, opioid original drugs. This is kind of more of a chemical that can be made, you know, and talking at the factory level, manufactured level. And what that leads to is then, so the dealer has more of it. And at the same time, from the behavior of a drug user, there's, there's definitely this interesting aspect where they actually seek out the stronger notion of having heroin that has been laced with higher concentrations of fentanyl. So if people have been known to be killed or overdosed, it demonstrates the drug's potency, which again, if you're saying, well, I don't want, you know, that's the directly behavior is, you know, I don't want something that will kill me. Well, at the same time, the behavior if you're addicted, might be, well, I know I'm getting something. Versus... So people are actually seeking out as dangerous a drugs as they can get to, to, to get that high. Yeah, so you could answer that for me as far as the behavioral. That is definitely what has been reported um, as far as a continuing trend of, of drug users in, in this field. Ooh, that's just astounding. Absolutely astounding. So you're talking about these programs that sort of address prescriber behavior, and I, I could see how a prescriber could could influence and sort of prevent people from getting into a position where they're addicted. Is there anything that prescribers can do that that address people who are are already addicted and maybe trying to game them for uh, for drugs for opioids? You know, if they have become addicted, that is when a clinician would intervene and arrange for treatment for opioid use disorders. Meaning that there are uh, one, they could also prescribe parallel medication to take that would reduce the addictive behavior so that, you know, so that's one method. But the other notion is how to monitor them so that they could get into a drug abuse, drug uh, substance program itself. And so that requires, you know, the constant tracking. And so I think, you know, where we would, 
would stage that. None of the systems are, are quite like this, and you have to look very hard to find that, that type of drug addiction treatment. You know, there's very limited clinics, and where those clinics are may not serve all of the time communities that um, are, are developing you know, in six months. So you recognize where these are versus where they need if to be. If it's a real issue and like how can healthcare technologies can prevent this somehow? Yeah, healthcare technologies always have that potential to be able to serve and detect, you know, and that's where some of what we come in with having large amounts of electronic health data to be able to see trends over time of, you know, what are the likely pathways that different patient categories. When we break patients into clusters that say, you know, here is, could be a gender, age specific, history specific condition. And you say, you know, what, what is the outcomes here of being treated over time with multiple pain release drugs? And so that is trying to stage first knowing what is the predicted outcome and so that you don't tend to those paths. Um, and so technology in that case can help us from the model perspective, but that model has to get delivered to, and it has to be readily uh, useful to a clinician at the point of care. Patient comes in for uh, repeated chronic pain and saying, you know, the first opioid-based prescription isn't handling their pain. And so right there and then, you know, that could be a number of conditions why that is. And there's many sciences that are evolving for each condition that even relate it to doing precision medicine. You know, why isn't that pain medication working in this particular instant? That is always the key that, you know, we would love to know, well, is it something related to the patient's family history, their genetics? Even the notion, you know, this is an interesting kind of concept that says, you know, when you're treating in, in a lot of these different pain therapy systems. And it's more for when we're talking about anesthesia, kind of putting somebody under general anesthetic. Some of the issues are their genetic background can uh -huh. change the way that, that the uh, blockers work in terms of the uh, pain sensitivity. So it's a track that redheads actually acquire more anesthetic medicine. So if you go to the dentist, uh, you know, if you're a redhead, chances are they're going to give you a little bit more for that and that's tracked to a, a gene and so yeah. things happen I, I have two redhead children and i can, <laughs> yeah, I I can tell you when when you go to the doctor with a broken bone for a kid they have a lot harder time numbing it down before they work on it <laughs> it takes a long time yeah i guess clustering patients can be really useful in different cases so actually another to topic we can talk about is this is the breakthrough technologies emerging in healthcare so I believe that we all heard about Fitbits, like the different features of Apple Watches, IoT scales. But the question that we have here is like, who are the users of all those? Are those the unhealthy people who really, really need it? Or actually the healthy people who already adopt some healthy lifestyles and who may not need it to continue it? Um, so do you have any insights for about that that you can tell about us, Dan? There, there's a whole domain, so another wide swing of technologies ranging from those that track your activity, and those are you know the companion devices like you mentioned, the Apple Watch, Fitbit. They also become data sources. So those data sources give you recognition if they can be ingested into an electronic health record uh, and electronic uh, care management platform. Those are definitely in the range of helping track social determinants of health, meaning are you active outside of when you see the doctor? You know, the clinicians only see a very small portal of what is happening to a patient. 
So imagine you come in, yeah, blood pressure, cholesterol, um, you know, you could do a lot of, uh, of laboratory results and tests, and that is very structured as well as just the direct back and forth between your doctor for them to actually figure out what some issues are. Then you have your activity, and then you have, you know, what you would really want to uncover, and this is not even um, condition-specific yet, but, you know, you want to know what the patient does outside of that window. You know, are they active? Do they walk a mile a day? Then you want to know their kind of nutrition access. So a lot of times, you know, these can be, you know, if you have some form of data related to even down to the zip code. Zip code is very broad, but if you had their, you know, longitude and latitude, you can determine a lot of things that they might not have access to grocery stores. They might not have access to parks. Any of this information is very relevant to treating a patient because you know, okay, you can, you know, if we take the disease area of diabetes, knowing that somebody lives in an area that they can go for a walk each day allows you to prescribe them, you know, directly, hey, I need you to get more exercise. I need you to maintain, I need you to lose 10% of your, your weight so that your HbA1c levels are controlled. And if a patient can't go out and walk, you know, that's, or can't find access to food because they, you know, have to take multiple uh, transit systems like buses to get to a grocery store, you know, they're just going to go to fast food and convenience stores and at the local, you know, gas so, station. So the promise then is these technologies could make it so doctor recommendations are, are a lot more helpful or a lot more relevant to the particular patient and their, their circumstances, not just their health circumstance, but their, their yeah. lifestyle and the things they can access. Yeah, a lot of the chronic diseases the, the conditionings for it and the care management come down to individual patient versus like meaning the patient behavior. So, so yeah. relevant for this conversation is, you know, there's choices that people can make. You're not going to get patients to always follow these prescriptions. I was wondering what is the impact of those technologies on the patient dignity? Like the one side of it, clinicians would be more able to like treat those diseases in a better way, more custom, in a more customized ways for the patient. But also patient would be aware that what they're following or what they're, fo what they're not following would be known from the clinicians. So I, f I feel like that so would improve the dignity and they were watching yeah. and they would be aware of that. So I believe that that's a, like a way to improve the patient behavior in a positive way. So definitely, especially relating that to technology. So here's a, here's a case example. Part of my health plan, and this goes across many other health plans, you know, allows me to register my... Apple device so that if I, I think if I work out 14 times a month, I get an extra $30 off my insurance plan each month. And then another part of my health plan says if I use my IoT, my Internet of Things weight scale sitting in my bathroom that is connected to the cloud so that I just stand on it once a day and it's going to weigh me and that, you know, that little privacy information is that my weight is going to go once a day over to this health plan that says, you know, have I been gaining weight? Have I been maintaining weight? There is, I think, you know, this direct behavior with the technology, because now I know besides myself how much I weigh and, and that other people might be you know, watching that scale so that around the holidays, everyone's weight tends to increase if they're, you know, having large meals and eating with families. 
but now it's it's one thing to be able to eat a meal without anybody knowing how much you're eating, and it's another thing to have to get on that device scale and say who else you know who else is getting this data. Yeah, and I wonder how would you identify yourself before all those technologies? Were you on the unhealthy or the healthy side? Yeah, well now there's a full cycle that says you know if you've been weighing yourself with your scale, not in, you know the, the weight is one thing, but people can have variations of weight. But even getting some feedback across several weighings that say, hey, you know, you get a text message now that says, hey, do you recognize your weight has increased by this percent? Oh, that would be awful. I wouldn't get, I would like, like, like to get it. <laughs> Stop. Turn off your phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, people even now, like some people like coming back to the question, who embraces this technology so very often you know i work in a data science lab and you know research lab where a lot of my data scientists do have apple watches that do remind them every couple hours that they haven't moved you know we, oh. we tend to tend to sit a very long time just coding and if your apple watch tells you hey you've been sitting there for two hours and just go for you know a little short walk you know that that has so many benefits related to health related to thinking it's really hard to get people to buy into that system because you can go ahead and say well i just want to shut off this announcement how much do you you know want to pay attention to it as far as especially if, if it's one system that you have to log into to start the process of the feedback you know it's like seeing a doctor if i log into the system it might tell me hey, I'm not doing very well this week or this month for activity. And I can directly see that I can't game the system because showing you heart, heart rate monitorings, and those are very difficult to falsify versus if you just say, you know, there's the other side of these technologies where related to exercising 14 times a month, people do game the system and they turn on their activity monitor that's not connected to their heartbeat and they huh. turn it off an hour later and say, Hey, I just went for a run. But if these things, they start to be, you know, GPS oriented and that you actually have to pass these thresholds of, you know, correct data, well then maybe, you know, we are treating that process as well. And they're just slow to, to take, but I actually believe in them very well. I mean, for my own self, you know, I usually tend to sign up for running races just to make sure even if i'm not ready for them just to make sure that uh, i get to the race i'm gonna have so to it's do like it. a self-control mechanism you're right yeah but i'm still not sure if i would like to receive those messages which would tell me <laughs> that you i gained weight then thank you for coming on the podcast firstly and thank you for those all insightful conversation and also like thank you for taking the time to join us today we're at Merad economics and this is the end of this episode today if you'd like to follow us or share your ideas with us or if you have any questions for us you can follow us on twitter at Merad economics and also you can send us emails at meradicon at gmail.com thank you and for the new episodes on behavioral science stay tuned